This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... For their own self-interests, it is incumbent on Africa to have a, a world where raw power is not exercised, but conciliation and diplomacy prevail. That's Professor John Strimlaw, an international relations expert and former U.S. diplomat in Africa, on expectations that the White House will push good governance issues at the U.S.-Africa Leaders' Summit. Details coming up. Also, the WHO says COVID-19 has set back global malaria control efforts, especially in Africa. Uganda has received the first batch of a trial vaccine for the Ebola Sudan strain. And the last eight teams of the FIFA World Cup are preparing for the semifinals that starts tomorrow. All these and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. The United States will host 49 African heads of state and the African Union envoy in Washington for a three-day starting next Wednesday. President Joe Biden's administration says it wants to use the event to reset relations with the continent. Some political analysts say the U.S. also does not want to lag behind China and Russia, whose influence in Africa continues to grow. Darren Taylor reports. Biden hasn't invited Burkina Faso, Guinea, Mali and Sudan because their military regimes suspended from the AU. Eritrea, Western Sahara and Somaliland also won't be in Washington as the US doesn't have official diplomatic relations with them. But others accused of human rights violations and political repression, including Egypt, Ethiopia and Zimbabwe, will be at the table. Well, look, this is an imperfect world, and so consequently uh, you have to make trade-offs. And I think that at this moment in time, it's a very good step to have the African summit occur. And uh, Professor John Stremlaus, an international relations expert and former U.S. diplomat in Africa. There are lots of questions, but ultimately it's important for Africans to meet with the Biden administration, particularly after the Trump administration, which was hostile to Africa and racist domestically. He says an important presence at the event will be Eno Abong, the Nigerian-American director of the U.S. Trade and Development Agency. It promotes American private sector participation in development projects. Another important figure, says Stremlau, will be Adewole Adeyemo, the first American of African descent to serve as Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Stremlau says Abong and Adeyemo are powerful symbols. It's a reminder that the African diaspora is critical to American democracy and it is incumbent upon Africans to engage, but to do so if they can with one voice. So I think there's room for constructive work But the agenda ought to be economic, it ought to be climate and sustainability, which is where the U.S. has made pledges. And I think it's in Africans' interest that they have a democratic administration in Washington. It's a good reminder that Africa can engage and work with the Americans as long as they also work with the Chinese and others. 
He says there are many practical issues to talk about, like the U.S. helping Africa in health and with climate change and the renewal of the African Growth and Opportunity Act. And mitigating the effects of the Ukraine war, which, as Martin Kimani, the ambassador to the U.N. from Kenya, rightly pointed out, is an assault on the fundamentals that have been the bedrock of African international and regional order, that is to say, sovereign equality and territorial integrity. Stremlau expects Biden's officials to push the issue of good governance in Africa. He points out the AU's charter emphasizes democratic values and free elections. For their own self-interests, it is incumbent on Africa to have a, a world where raw power is not exercised, but conciliation and diplomacy prevail. And I think that they can go into this meeting behind the African Union and calling for all countries to respect the values of the Constitutive Act and the African Charter and to support the African free trade area. That means if the Chinese want to work in Africa, they shouldn't mess around with the African domestic affairs, but neither should the Americans or neither should the Russians. But they should at least be open to Africa choosing democratic options rather than autocratic options for the good of Africa. Analysts say Africa is also likely to use the summit to push for the AU to join the G20 bloc and for a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit is seen by many in Africa as important for U.S.-African relations and there are expectations that it will increase cooperation on shared global priorities. Wilfred Niwagaba is a Ugandan Member of Parliament and the Shadow Attorney General. He tells my colleague Douglas Mpuga that although the Ugandan Parliament has no role in the summit, they are hopeful it will help in improving trade relations and tackling the issue of good governance. We look up to the U.S. as the beacon of hope and the beacon of democracy. And any shift from African leaders from the U.S. to, to China, some of us look at it with a lot of misgivings. And our hope is that uh, the United States government will put sense into the majority of the African leaders who lack democracy back home. And I hope the government, U.S. government will put this into them to see the values of the U.S., particularly the freedoms of all individuals and the government, governments that work for the citizens. Uh, that's one of the issues that leaders will be talking about. Africa has a lot of potential. What do you think African leaders should press for as far as trade relations are concerned between U.S. and African countries? Well, we are happy about the uh, AGOA initiative, but we would be more interested in seeing much more a trade on friendly terms between Africa and the U.S. and would be much more interested in seeing the U.S. capital in the form of investments come to Africa so that we create jobs for our people 
and uh, develop our economies in uh, both ways at the private level, at the government level, particular infrastructure and the like. And recently there was a summit on climate change. How do you think we can work with the United States to mitigate the challenges of climate change on the continent? The biggest challenge with the U.S. has been the different governments taking different stands on issues of climate change and its effect. And we hope that the U.S. at one time will have a united voice in, on issues of climate change. And we do believe that the majority of the African leaders know the consequences and impact of climate change on the citizens, on the economies of Africa and the like. More floods, more droughts, shortage of pasture for animals and the like. And we hope there will be useful talks and useful decisions, especially on how to curb the carbon emissions. African countries, most of them are burdened with the heavy debt and they have a problem of debt payments. Is there a way they can work with the United States to sort this issue out? The biggest challenge of uh, debt that is actually burdening African governments is debt not from the U.S. but from China because I think most of them borrow from China at commercial rates. And how we wish we could be able as governments to have concessional loans and in the long run be able to pay off most of these commercial loans so that uh, uh, the citizens are not overburdened because the few people who pay taxes are being overtaxed and the big percentage of local revenues is going to clear uh, the foreign debts, particularly from Exim Bank and the like. And it's really affecting the lowest person in Africa. Wilfred Nwagaba is a Ugandan member of parliament and shadow attorney general. He spoke with Douglas Mpuga by phone from Kampala. The World Health Organization says the COVID-19 pandemic has set back global malaria control efforts, especially in Africa. However, this year's World Malaria Report says countries were able to lessen disruptions to prevention, testing and treatment. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. In 2019, before the pandemic struck, there were 568,000 malaria deaths. Despite the pandemic and other humanitarian emergencies, WHO information shows concerted action by countries has prevented the worst potential impacts of COVID-19-related disruptions to malaria services. WHO officials say the world has largely managed to salvage many of the gains made against malaria during the past 20 years. Abdus Salah Noor, head of the WHO Global Malaria Program's Strategic Information Unit, says malaria cases dramatically increased in the first year of the pandemic. However, he says the number of cases last year remained largely the same as in 2020. Overall, however, the pandemic and its related disruptions um, have led to increases in malaria burden over the last two years, and we estimate that about 63,000 deaths and about 13 million cases are attributed to disruptions during the malaria during the COVID-19 pandemic. Noor says most deaths and cases have occurred in the WHO African region. At the same time, he says, progress in malaria control is continuing. 
For example, he says 11 countries with the world's highest malaria levels have largely held the line against the disease during the pandemic. Among them are Burkina Faso, the Democratic Republic of Congo, India, Mali, and Tanzania. Despite the challenges posed by the pandemic, Noor says nearly 300 million insecticide-treated bed nets were distributed to susceptible families. He says bed nets are regarded as the most important tool against malaria, and their declining effectiveness is of concern. He cites growing insecticide resistance and households decreasing retention of bed nets as major problems. In particular because of uh, the physical durability of the bed net itself, as well as the maintenance of the bed net in the household. So we're not getting the gains we would have hoped for from the ITN, which is essentially means that uh, given that mass campaigns happen every three years, we have a considerable period between campaigns when people are not receiving effective protection. WHO officials consider the current setback as a temporary glitch on the road to global malaria elimination. They say key opportunities, such as a new generation of malaria control tools, could help accelerate progress toward this goal. They say long-lasting bed nets with new insecticide combinations and other innovations in vector control are in the offing. They say by late next year, the world's first malaria vaccine will be offered to millions of children who are at greatest risk of illness and death. They add other life-saving malaria vaccines also are in development. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Uganda, which has been battling an outbreak of the Ebola Sudan strain, has received the first batch of a trial vaccine. While scientists and doctors have developed treatment regimes for Ebola that have cut the high death rate for the virus, there currently is no proven vaccine against the Sudan strain. The batch arriving from the Sabine Vaccine Institute is one of three candidates expected for trial in the country. Catherine Nambi reports from Kampala. Uganda's Ministry of Health has received 1,200 doses through the World Health Organization that are to be used in the trial. Dr. Jen Ruth Acheng is Uganda's health minister. Uganda is the first country to receive trial vaccines in record time. The vaccines for Ebola Sudan were not ready with any manufacturer, but a lot of research and development had taken place. And when we put in our request, the World Health Organization had to start running the race, and today we have the first batch, we shall be receiving other doses from Mark and from Oxford. Although Uganda discharged its last Ebola patient last week, Minister Cheng says the vaccine trials will go ahead as planned in preparation for future battles, given that Uganda has suffered seven outbreaks. We are nine days today, so it does not mean we will not get another case. We are still in a response mode and the vaccines have come on time to continue supporting the response. But nonetheless, even if there are no cases and no contacts and no suspects, the Ministry of Health will still request the scientists to continue with the study. Uganda is a country that always wants to be prepared and ready whenever any outbreak occurs. 
The Makerere University Lung Institute is undertaking the vaccine trials. Professor Bruce Chirenga, the institute's director, says enough preparation has been done to test their efficacy and safety. We set up a team of uh, scientists to prepare for the clinical trial. We are seven co-investigators. We have been working with a large group of people, both local and international. We had uh, technical officers from WHO. We also received technical officers from other African countries which have been participating in Ebola responses, especially the vaccine from Guinea. We are ready to start the trial 100%. Dr. Charles Njuguna is the head of health emergencies at the WHO Uganda country office. He says the vaccine trials are aimed at complementing other measures in place to control the spread of Ebola. The WHO says the vaccines will only be administered to high-risk populations. What we mean here is the immediate contacts of a person who has been diagnosed with the Sudan virus disease. It should be noted that the participation in this trial is voluntary and free. However, the arrival of this vaccine does not interfere with activities that have been initiated in this country to fight this Ebola outbreak by the Ministry of Health and by the government of Uganda. Since Ebola broke out in September, Uganda has recorded 142 cases and 56 deaths. Two districts, including Mubende, where the disease was first reported, remain under a localized lockdown to control its spread. This is Catherine Nambi for VOA News in Kampala. A court in Mozambique has sentenced 11 people, including two former intelligent chiefs, to up to 12 years in prison for their involvement in a corruption scandal that secretly added more than $2 billion to the African country's debt. Charles Mangawiro reports from the capital Maputo. A Maputo city court on Wednesday issued prison terms for 11 defendants involved in Mozambique's $2.2 billion debt scandal. Judge Efigenio Batista read out the verdicts for two former Mozambican intelligence chiefs involved in the scandal. Antonio Carlos de Rosario is sentenced to a single sentence of 12 years. Defendant Gregorio Leao is sentenced to 12 years in prison. Angela Leao, Gregorio's wife, is sentenced to a single sentence of 12 years in prison. Rosario and Leao were both found guilty of embezzlement, money laundering and other crimes. Ndambi Gebuza, son of former Mozambican president Armando Gebuza, was also sentenced to 12 years in prison. The court considered it proven that the son of the former president accepted bribes to influence his father to approve a coastal protection project used to raise the money that fed the hidden debts. The judge said those convicted must return the $2.2 billion. The court said the deadline for filing an appeal is 20 days. Jurist Paulino Cosa said the verdict shows that no one is above the law in Mozambique. Indeed, he said, this shows that in our country, whatever it could be, there are no untouchables. The judge said that he did not find sufficient evidence to convict eight of the 19 defendants charged in connection with the scandal. However, during the trial, which lasted for three months, sitting President Philip Nussi was implicated in several testimonies. The date scandal was discovered in 2014 when Nussi was Minister of Defense. 
Three Mozambican state-owned companies secretly borrowed $2 billion from international banks to finance purchases of fishing vessels and military patrol boats. In 2016, the scandal was discovered because the loans were contracted without parliamentary approval and behind the backs of the creditors of a country that is among the 10 poorest in the world and dependent on international aid. Cooperation partners, including the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, withdrew aid to Mozambique and plunged the country into an unprecedented financial crisis and defaulted. To date, some of the money has not been found. According to an independent audit, $500 million disappeared. Charles Manguiro for VOA News, Maputo, Mozambique. Zimbabwe has long been burdened by persistent power cuts, but that has not kept football lovers from finding ways to follow the World Cup in Qatar. Reporter Kuzaza Nawashi in Harare has the details. That's the sound of a heavy-duty electricity generator powering a bar where football lovers, mostly men, are gathered to watch the World Cup match between Poland and Argentina. The power cuts are crippling and worsening by the day. The Kariba South Hydropower Station recently suspended operations due to low water levels in the Kariba Dam. The station supplies Zimbabwe with 70% of its electricity. In the bar, football lover Nkosikona Zikali has come to watch the game. We spend more than 16 hours without electricity, so it's, it's bad, it's bad. Tendai Choga says fans are improvising to follow the games. With the starting of this World Cup, it has actually exposed the desperate situation among Zimbabweans. Most of them have actually resorted to watching uh, football in photo stores and nightclubs. And think what it has made is that uh, football has actually been turned to be a preserve for the privileged few. Most even the nightclubs and the photo stores, they are even charging. Like Choga, Zikali says the options are limited and can be costly. Basically it's through the phone or else uh, you go watch the game by the bar. There's no way else that you can watch football because there's no food, there's no electricity. So by the bar we get there, you need to pay to enter. You need to buy alcohol so that you can watch a game. So it's, it's becoming expensive to watch the FIFA World Cup. Choga says the FIFA World Cup has been reduced to a sport of a privileged few. Emmanuel Chitonga is a football lover who wishes he was following the games from the comfort of his house. Ah, it's a very difficult thing. My kids love soccer. I want to see that soccer with my wife and my kids in my home. In the bars, the soccer matches are shown with music playing in the background to keep the mood somewhat lively. Outside the bars, tech-savvy football lovers have been pirating live streams of matches, mostly from their workplaces or Wi-Fi spots. And some fans are following the World Cup matches in betting shops that allow football lovers a chance to win by wagering on teams. For VOA, this is Kudzaj Navashe in Harare. For the sunny side of sports, this is Kudzaj Navashe in Harare.
Today's a day off at the World Cup with the quarterfinals starting tomorrow. Catch up on the latest World Cup news on voaafrica.com slash World Cup. And stay tuned to all your favorite VOA programs, including the sunny side of sports. And don't forget to look for our World Cup podcast, On Goal, with Sonny and Mok Beal. We'll have an update on today's action on African News Tonight at 1800 UTC with Sonny Young. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, John Walker, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Thank you.